Hi, and welcome to the We Need New Roads podcast, and the justice system works swiftly in the future, now they've abolished all lawyers. And David, what is your terrible, soul-purging joke today? Okay, guys, have to level with you here. David's not here today. Uh, he might have been taken away from telling a really bad joke somewhere, and is currently in joke jail. No, actually, it's the fact that he's a really busy man and hasn't had the time to see today's film that I really want to talk about, which is Last Night in Soho. I saw it a few days ago, and I just couldn't wait to tell you all about it. So be warned, this is a spoiler special episode. This is your spoiler alert. So, Last Night in Soho is a new film from Edgar Wright and his first narrative film since Baby Driver back in 2017, not counting this year's Sparks documentary that I'm still yet to see, but also is apparently brilliant. With Baby Driver, it felt like Wright was purposely trying to step away from what made his name in this case, which was the uh, Cornetto trilogy of films. This starred his usual coterie of actors like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Baby Driver was Wright's first film shot and set in the States, but Last Night in Soho finds him once again back in the UK. Now, it's rated 18 for strong bloody violence, and Last Night in Soho is a psychological horror film. It was a screenplay by Wright and 1917 co-writer Christy Wilson-Carnes, and it's based on a story that Wright had previously written. Indeed, there is a great interview out there on the Empire Magazine podcast where both Wright and Carnes were interviewed and we learned that Carnes actually worked as a barmaid in their infamous Soho pub, The Toucan, which is one of the main locations in the film. And they both lived and worked in Soho for quite a few years. And it would be the stories about the old days of the swing and 60s they would hear that placed a seed of the story in Wright's head. Now, on the 18 certificate, I've seen many more 15 films recently that have been way, way gorier than Last Night in Soho. But I think because the violence is linked to sex and sex work, and also we get a couple of C words thrown out in the film, that's probably what gets it its 18 certificate. Unfortunately, two of the actresses in the film did pass away before its release, Margaret Nolan and, of course, the legendary Dame Diana Rigg, who plays the elderly Miss Collins. And in a nice touch, right at the beginning of the film, we have a title card that says, For Diana. Now, the story follows young Eloise Ellie Turner, played by Jojo Rabbit's Thomasin McKenzie, an aspiring fashion designer from the Southwest who is obsessed with the music and fashion of the 60s. She lives with her grandmother, and as we learn very early on, her mother was also a designer who actually killed herself during Ellie's childhood. Ellie also sees her mother's ghost once in a while, and it's strongly hinted very early on that Ellie herself has had mental health problems. We do get a sense right in the beginning of the film of how creepy London can be, especially when you're a young woman. Um, Ellie has trouble with a cab driver on her way to her flat as she moves into a student accommodation, so much so that she actually gets out of the cab and hides in the shop to make sure he's gone. That whole exchange is unpleasant, especially with a cabbie saying, oh, you could be a model love, when she tells him that she works in fashion. Uh, my only issue with the scene is that I honestly can't remember the last time I ever had a white English cab driver in London. Ellie immediately doesn't fit in with her arsehole roommate, Jocasta, and her cronies, and another student, John, is the only person who's actually nice to her. On her first night out, we do get to see what a complete twat Jocasta is when she tries to one-up Ellie when Ellie's just mentioned about her mother dying, and she's like, yeah, well, I lost my uncle too, so it's the same thing. You know, she's an utter, utter pitch of a character and played really well by Scottish actress, and I have really struggled with this pronunciation, Sinove Carlson, maybe, maybe. Um, apologies to her if I've got her name badly wrong, which I feel I have. But with her roommate situation deteriorating, she finds a bedsit in Good Street, owned by the old Miss Collins, played by Diana Rigg, in her last on-screen role. And what a role it turns out to be. Uh, funnily enough, the bedsit is located just north of Soho in Fitzrovia, and of course. You can't get away from the allusions to Michael Powell's classic 1960s horror, Peeping Tom, which was one of the films that pretty much derailed Powell's career for many years until Scorsese managed to get it reappraised and everyone went, oh yeah, he is really good. I mean, you know, Peeping Tom was arguably probably one of the first proper slasher horror films um, that 
predated Psycho by quite a while, but there was such outrage that when Peeping Tom did come out, it essentially ended his career. One thing I've always admired about Wright's films is that they feel quintessentially English and show England as we all know it, from Shaun of the Dead right through the rest of the Cornetto trilogy. Outside Wright's films, I tend to find that British films fall into three distinct camps. You've got your low-level gangster dramas, which, you know, we can blame Guy Ritchie for. You've got your high-end period dramas, like your likes of your Merchant Ivory films. And of course, you've got your Richard Curtis rom-coms, such as Four Weddings and Notting Hill. I mean, there seem to be really very little representation of what modern-day Britain for the average working middle-class life was like on screen, which is why Wright's early films really struck a chord with us. Uh, but I digress. So, on her first night in a bed, Ellie awakes and ventures down an alleyway, right into the middle of Soho, still dressed in her bedclothes, and walks right into the famed Café de Paris, where upon looking in the mirror, she doesn't see herself, but she sees Anya Taylor-Joy's character, Sandy, who absolutely mirrors her movements. It's at this point we quickly switch POVs so that Ellie is the interloper in the dream slash past vision sequence, who is glimpsed in reflections and cannot, and she cannot be seen by the other characters. We have a dance number in the club that is absolutely sublime, and on my first viewing, I thought it was a masterpiece of editing by Wright's recent editor, Paul Matchless. Sandy meets Matt Smith's sleazy club manager, Jack, and they take to the dance floor. But what made this sequence just amazing in my eyes was that at various points we'd move around, and it looked like Ellie and Sandy were being cut in and out with Smith seamlessly. Well, as an editor myself, I was actually shocked to find there was no cuts in this scene. It was a one-er, and um, in an interview with Screen Rant, Wright said there was no editing, it was all filmed in one amazing shot. So the idea was to do the dance sequence where Ellie and Sandy keep swapping in and out while dancing with Jack. And there was a choreographer, a steady cam operator, and the three actors. And between them, with Wright at the helm, they just crafted this amazing sequence. Wright said the sequence was so good, it was actually double the length he originally planned it to be, and that he's hoping to include the aerial angles of the shot on the Blu-ray extras, which I cannot wait to see. So, after a night out of dancing and passion with Jack, Ellie wakes up in a bed, refreshed, motivated, and now she's got a bit of confidence. She kicks ass at college, designing an impressive dress, and she changes up her whole look to look more like Sandy, who's almost becoming like her alter ego. So, so far, it's kind of like Midnight in Paris in the mechanics of travelling back to the 60s. In there, you know, Owen Wilson walked to the steps around midnight, and the the uh, cab would turn up and take him off. Uh, to the olden times, in this one, whenever Ellie goes to sleep at night in the bedsit, she turns up back in the 1960s. But already, we have that creeping dread that not everything in the 60s is going to be as pleasant for Ellie. We are introduced to the 60s legend Terence Stamp, General Zod himself, who is a regular in the Soho pub scene, and drinks in the famed pub The Toucan, where co-writer Carnes once worked, and Ellie's character gets a job in the film. Now, Stamp's character seems to recognise Ellie, and recognises how she's beginning to look like Sandy, and he clearly remembers Sandy at this point. On our next trip back to the 60s, we find that Matt Smith's Jack has got Sandy in audition for a nightclub where she wows everyone, and in reality, yes, this is Anya Taylor-Joy's actual singing. She sings Petula Clark's classic, Downtown. Everyone's wowed, and she's all set to be a big star. Everything's going great for Sandy, everything's going great for Ellie, and back in the real world as well. However, on the next visit to the 60s, Ellie is shocked to see that Sandy's audition was more for her to be a dancer in a kind of review club which was more or less a market for old men to pay to have sex with these women. We see that Matt Smith's Jack is a massive slimy prick of a character, and Taylor Joy is awesome as always, and there's this great montage scene where we initially refuse to see her go off with these men, and Jack tells her this is the way to the top, and you see how she grudgingly falls into this life of prostitution. This montage scene that comes up, it just shows us 
how Sandy has worn down and becomes more and more unhinged and unhappy from, you know, initially being quite polite to the men who offered to buy her a drink to just barely talking to them to just outright drunken hysterical laughter by the end of it. It's here from this point in the film that the 60s start to bleed through into the modern day and Ellie starts seeing ghostly apparitions of men appearing first in her bedsit and then eventually all over the place, all over London where she is. Everyone seems to think that Ellie is unhinged and suffering from the same mental health issues that plagued her mother. Her grandmother Peggy, played by the legendary Rita Tushingham, tries desperately to get her return home but Ellie is on a downward spiral here. She begins to see these visions of creepy old dead pervy men in the day and not even in her bedsit now. Not wanting to return to her flat, she takes up Nice Guy John's offer to go to a Halloween party where once again she has visions of the men and runs off screaming into the night. She and John return to their flat where they start, you know, getting it on before Ellie screams the whole house down when she sees what looks like Sandy being murdered by Jack. All the commotion makes John run off and Ellie cops a bollocking from the landlady, Mrs Collins, whose one rule was, don't bring boys back to the room. Ellie's psychosis continues to get worse and these visions just completely fuse with reality, so much so that she starts re trying to research Sandy's murder. But of course, we don't know if Sandy was her real name. We don't know where she was, what age. We haven't got any other information. And yet somehow Ellie's off to like the student library to, you know, research old papers from around the time. And in this library scene, once again, more and more visions of creepy guys coming towards her. And this was brilliant because at one point she almost stabs her roommate right through the skull believing her to be one of the guys coming for her. It's only John who stops her right at the last minute before she stabs Jocasta right through the head with a pair of scissors. Oh, that would have been nice. Now, moving into the third and final act of the film, we really have some big twists. And I've got to say, I didn't see the main two twists coming, which, again, is great work on the script by writing cards. Firstly, the film has been leading us to think that Terence Stamp's old creepy womanizer character who seems to remember Sandy and takes an unhealthy interest in Ellie is most definitely the older version of Jack. Except it's not him. After Ellie confronts the old man in the street outside their pub and accuses him of being a murderer, which he denies, at the end of the argument he leaves and is killed by a car in the street. Then the landlady of the pub tells Ellie his name was Lindsay and he was actually a retired vice officer who we get reminded with flashbacks did actually meet Sandy and tried to get her out of her life of prostitution. So some very nice misdirection there. When we had the montage that I mentioned earlier with Sandy and all these guys, there is one guy, a young guy played by Sam Kathleen, actually, who is like, you need to, you know, you want to get out of this life. You need to get out of here. I could help. And she just ignores him. We just think he's another punter spinning her yarn. Now we find out it's actually Lindsay and that he was the old vice um, cop who'd been trying to help her. So a very nice misdirection on that twist. Ellie even visits the police and the male police officer is joking with his colleagues afterwards about Ellie's story with an earshot while the female detective was actually nice to her and tried to reach out to her. So, I mean, causing an innocent man's death by accident, Ellie has quite rightly had enough and says, fuck it, I'm going home back to the southwest. But of course... She has to stop by the haunted flat of pervy old man ghost to get her things. And the script is quite clever here, as we've already established that the landlady, Miss Collins, won't let men in, which is why despite it being a bad idea and not really enough of a reason, John waits outside in the car. Now near the start of the film, Miss Collins, when Ellie moved in, told her she didn't want someone running off in the middle of the night, which is exactly what Ellie's about to do. But... Being the good person that Ellie is, she sits down for a nice cup of tea with Miss Collins and explains the situation. Miss Collins then mentions, oh, I heard that you went to the police. And we are surprised to find out that she already knows that Ellie went to the police. And dun dun dun, plot twist. And the big revelation is that Miss Collins, Miss Dame Diana Rigg, is actually the grown-up Sandy. 
Sandy never actually got killed in the flashback that Ellie saw. And actually, when we see the flashback again now, we see that Sandy actually kills Jack here in self-defense and she survives. But what happens there is she then kept bringing men back to the flat again and again and again and killing him in that room again and again and again. And we have all these ghostly apparitions of men stuck in different parts of the house. She also reveals she's drugged Ellie to make it look like Ellie has killed herself to prevent her from telling anyone else about her secret. Of course, she'd warn John, if I'm not back in 15 minutes, come and rescue me. John comes in, and of course, because he's a nice guy and a bit of a wet blanket, he completely gets stabbed straight away because, well, he's John the wet blanket. Now you've got Ellie and Ellie, slightly sleepy Ellie and Miss Collins having a fight, and somehow the building gets set on fire. So what do you do in a fire? In a horror film, you run upstairs to the haunted room where you find out, in fact, that the ghosts are, in fact, begging Ellie to kill Miss Collins so they can be freed. And when she enters the room, the ghost of Jack just, you know, appears and slaps her. And uh, she, Collins then actually tries to kill herself rather than be taken by the police. But Ellie stops her and says, look, I understand why you killed those men. And then Miss Collins appears as Sandy and she says, look, save yourself and John from the fire. We do have an epilogue where Ellie is now a famous designer and happy with her grandmother and John as her boyfriend. And as she looks in the mirror, seeing her mum smiling, she then sees a vision of Sandy who waves at her and blows a kiss to the end of the film. Look, I love this film because it's Edgar Wright expanding his palette as a filmmaker. Yes, it's not funny and it's jokey and it doesn't feel like one of his previous films, but that's what makes it a good film. It's a filmmaker expanding his set of skills and working in different genres. This is, you know, this isn't a funny film. There's the odd joke here and there, but it's not, you know, laugh a minute. He's going for psychological horror slash thriller here. And for the most part, I think he really succeeds. You know you're going to get great editing and amazing music editing with uh, uh, an Edgar Wright film. And here his visual style is unmatched, as is the production design. While it's had a generally positive reception from audience and critics, it's not taken a lot of the box office, but as we've mentioned before, this October has been spectacularly crammed at the box office with tons of massive films out. And so an original genre-defying mid-budget British horror film it's going to struggle to find an audience, I think. I don't think it's any reflection on the um, quality of the film. In fact, from what I've read, the companies, the producers of the film, have been very happy with how well the film's done relative to what they expected it to do so far. I think it's one of these films that's indeed going to go on to be a cult classic in years to come, pretty much like every time Wright releases a film these days, to be fair. Um, but there was a fair few reviews that really didn't like it. Now... I'm going to take a quick look at some of these. So one of them said, well, it's too slow and weird and it takes too long to get going. But look, it's not a complicated film to follow and I really despair for the future of cinema if you can't follow Last Night in Soho. It's slow because you need the time to build up Ellie's character and her love of the 60s and how over the course of the film she comes to realise that living in the past isn't all it's cracked up to be. People have complained that it doesn't hit the horror hard enough, but I would disagree. We don't need gallons of blood, as a true horror is really what happened to Sandy over the years that turned her from this wide-eyed young singer into the killer that she becomes in Miss Collins. In my mind, it isn't really a horror film, bar a couple of stabby, stabby, stabby scenes. It's more of a psychological thriller, because we've set up that Ellie has a fragile state of mind, we set up it runs in the family, and I actually thought there was a chance we was going to get a big rug pull at one point, where... She was imagining all of it, and most of the film could have been in her head. I was also surprised more was not made of seeing her mother in the film, and that bar a few shots in the mirror, that's literally all we saw of her. 
I, I was surprised that we didn't learn anything, or at least I don't remember about Ellis' father, and I thought he could have been connected to the larger story as the film began. But it just seemed these couple of shots of her look at, looking and seeing her mother smiling at her in the mirror that were more reassuring than anything. But, you know, anytime you see a ghost in the mirror, you're expecting it to go to that next level and go, oh, it's going to, something dark and evil is going to happen. But that never happened here. Her mother was always the reassuring, I suppose it was some kind of way to link to Ellie's mental health, but seeing the ghost of her mother. But then that kind of confuses me at the end because she's still seeing her mother in the mirror, admittedly happy for her now. But then we also see the ghost of Santi in the mirror, blowing her a kiss. I just think it was a cool shot that Wright wanted to do to uh, end the film. The cinematography is amazing with that neon glow of Soho. There's a really heavy use of red and blues. And, you know, it's 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 amazing work by cinematographer Chung Hoon Chung, previously known for Park Chan-wook's stunning old boy. And he was also the cinematographer on Andy Machete's It. So another film that had very a very, very, very uh, exotic red colour plate, shall we say. One criticism that I can agree with, but don't necessarily find a major issue to my enjoyment of the film, is that the film's themes of misogyny and mental health are pretty much surface level only. We have all these repeated mentions of Ellie's fragile state of mental health, and the fact that her mother was also a designer, went to London, and then killed herself, but it's never really explored in any other depth than, oh, that girl from the small town is crazy like her mum. I mean, it can be argued that was the setup so that when we do get the reveal of Ms. Collins at the end, Ellie's state of mind is her perfect cover story when Collins plans to kill her, which, you know, she even monologues, she gets a nice evil lady monologue. They'll just think she was, you know, I can't actually remember the words because I've only seen the film once, but she monologues about how they're all going to think she was crazy and killed herself. The only kind of, it's not really even a major issue, but I don't really like John the boyfriend. He just seems too damn nice and a bit of a wet blanket. I get that not every man in the film needs to be a dick, like, you know, birds of prey. I mean, really, his whole courtship is he accidentally took her can of Coke out of the fridge and buys her a new one. That's pretty much it. I mean, it's not exactly taking a girl out for a nice meal now, is it? Um, you could argue that the end is a bit messy with the Miss Collins' Sandy reveal and then the ghosts were not there to harm Ellie but Warner, which is a standard Glamero del Toro trope. Ghosts and monsters are not bad, it's always the people, and the ghosts and monsters are trying to warn the other characters about the other people. So perhaps the film could have spent a little bit more time hinting at that rather than Ellie screaming and running off all the time. Also, at the end, are we supposed to feel sorry for the men Sandy killed or feel sorry for Sandy? And it's really, really mixed. It's never really clear where we stand on that. Yes, she was abused by these men. But after killing Jack, why didn't she leave? Why didn't she stop? And why did she continue to keep killing men again and again and again? I suppose on repeat viewings, I might find that I do have some issues with the film that some of the critics have, but on my initial viewing, I absolutely love the film. It's got a rich visual palette, and with Wright stepping away from his usual jokey tropes, which is not to say I don't love his early work, you know, pretty much a fan of every Edgar Wright film he's ever made, but I think with this film, it shows him developing as a filmmaker who isn't afraid to try new things and take changes with a truly original idea that bends genres and decades. Now, knowing the twist of the story, I am really looking forward to rewatching and seeing all the little clues that have been spread around for us to find. Also, if you like your 60s music, it's got an absolutely... I don't want, I really don't want to say the phrase banging, but that's all I can think of. It's got a swinging, swinging. It's got a swinging 60s soundtrack, which you can find on Spotify. I, I know the soundtrack's a good 60s one because I showed it to my parents and they knew every song on there. So clearly, as we all know, Wright knows his music as well. And... I'm actually now going to try and convince my parents to watch this film because I don't think it's gory, too gory for them and I think they will like it because they were, you know, it's the 60s, they love it 
And I think that wraps up our one night in Soho. David's going to be back with me on the next pod, and we've had a glut of films in the last month to review. An absolute glut. I mean, I've been going two, three nights a week, which, you know, for me is a fair bit. But, my God, some of you people on Twitter that follow us, I mean, I, I, I think you guys live in the cinemas. Um, some of our followers and some of these other great accounts that we do follow on our Twitter, you guys are just in the cinema all the time. There's people that have seen June four times already. I mean, that's dedication. See you next time. We needed Rose.